morning. Thanks for tuning in today. If you grew up at Grace or in another evangelical church, I strongly expect that you know the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress is a classic tale. It's an allegory of the Christian life, where the author tells a story of a young man named Christian who becomes a pilgrim, traveling from his home in the city of destruction to his destination of the celestial city. It's an amazing story full of gripping characters and captivating events. But today, I want to begin by drawing your attention to the story's author, John Bunyan. Though he wrote this classic work, John Bunyan was not primarily an author. First and foremost, he was a Baptist pastor in the 17th century. Pretty cool. But this meant his life would be one defined by living in a hostile world, facing the pressure of kings, clergy, and a wider society that opposed him. This might be shocking to you. Why would an ordinary pastor who wrote an amazing Christian allegory face such opposition? The explanation is quite, sadly quite simple. During that time, if you read the Bible and ended up believing and practicing what we do here at Grace Today, you would be a societal outcast. If you preached in line with those convictions, you'd be a straight-up criminal. Why? Because you were a Baptist, and the state church, the king's church, wasn't. So Bunyan, an ordinary Baptist pastor, faced incredible pressure in his life. The king and the government officials tried to shut him down. The clergy of the state church wanted to suppress him, and the wider society wanted to alienate him all because of his Baptist convictions. That's heavy. But today, I want to suggest to you that many of us have faced a similar reality. The pressure of powerful people in our lives clashing against our identity as God's people. Depending where you're from in the world, you may have felt that direct pressure from government officials because of your Christian faith. But for most of us here today, this is probably something you felt in the day-to-day -day situations. Maybe your biblical morality clashes with the way your supervisor or company sometimes operates. Perhaps your Christian priorities and sensibilities put you at odds with the cool kids, the larger-than-life cool kids at school. If you think about it, we constantly face the pressure of powerful people who, intentionally or not, surround us, intimidate us, and at times, tempt us. It's a real issue, a big part of life. So I think we must ask, how should we respond? How should we as God's people respond to the pressure of powerful people around us? Well, to get answers, I think we should do what Bunyan certainly would have done. Turn to scripture and see what wisdom and instruction God gives us on this matter. To do that, I encourage you, pause the video, grab your Bible, and follow along with me as we read, examine, and learn from Jacob's life in Genesis 33. We'll see from Genesis 33 that being one of God's people, seeking to follow God's path, resulted in pressure from the powerful people in our lives. In this passage, we'll read of Jacob's encounter with his brother Esau, an immensely powerful man who he cheated and hid from for decades. We'll see what finally happens when they meet again. Follow along as I read Genesis 33, 1-3. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming with 400 men with him. 
So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing down, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Just from verse 1, we can already get the sense of the crushing pressure Jacob faced. He was traveling with his family and flocks, a defenseless caravan, and suddenly he looks up and sees Esau, his brother. To Jacob, this wasn't a welcome sight. Esau, a man who was born red and covered with hair, who grew up to be a skillful hunter and a man of the fields, stood before him. The last thing we heard from this man was his oath that he would kill Jacob. Uh-oh. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Look through his eyes. Esau must have been a fearsome sight, an icon of wrath and vengeance, a powerful man coming to settle the score. Things get worse. What's behind him? An army of 400 men. We can probably imagine the tremor that probably took hold of Jacob's hands, the sweat that began to pour down his face, the plans of escape running through his mind. The pressure was on and Jacob had to act. What would he do? Well, as we read, the first thing he did was get his family into formation, a plan he established back in Genesis 32. So far, so good. The threat came and he stuck to the plan. What's next? Well, brace yourself. Because what came next is perhaps one of the most mind-boggling twists in our series so far. Jacob, a man we're introduced to as a deceiver and schemer who repeatedly runs to get out of tough situations, just set up his family in such a way to ensure his own protection and the protection of what he values most, does the following. Look at verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. What? Instead of running, instead of sacrificing his family to get away, instead of trying to talk his way out of trouble, instead of doing anything we've come to expect Jacob to do, Jacob now amazingly, shockingly, chooses the path of humility. Wow. Okay, that's big. But let's take a breather and talk about humility. What would make humility such a shocking choice for a schemer and deceiver? Simply put, humility is the opposite of pride. Kids, I want you to imagine or maybe remember a time when you've broken something while playing in the house. You know you weren't supposed to be playing with the ball in the living room, but you did. And now your mother's favorite vase is broken. The panic sets in. What do you do? Maybe if you're like me as a kid, your first instinct is to hide the damage and run away. Hope no one notices, but if they do, hope they can't catch you. Maybe if you're like my brother as a kid, you're banking on letting your sibling take the blame. They're the one who normally breaks stuff, right? Or maybe you're tempted to lie. Say it fell over when the dog brushed a table, or even better, while you were trying to clean the table. These are all pretty common responses to trouble, but they all represent responses of pride. In all of them, you're putting yourself first. 
Your actions reflect a heart and mind that believes you don't deserve to be in trouble. You're too precious to face discipline, or you're just too smart to get caught. That's prideful. That doesn't honor your parents or God. The humble response, on the other hand, would be the one where you own up to your wrongdoing, accept the consequences, and do so because you truly want to do what's right. Acting out of humility in this situation means embracing your wrongdoing and honestly seeking to make things right. In general, humility means recognizing your place and putting God and others first. And amazingly, that's what we now see Jacob doing. Instead of hiding behind his family, making a run for it, or adding some more lies into the situation, he goes before his family, placing himself in the line of fire first. He bows himself to the ground seven times, acknowledging his submission and wrongdoing. And he goes straight to his brother, recognizing he must make things right. Jacob the deceiver, the birthright thief, the one who stole the blessing that said he would be lord over his brother, now humbly draws near to the man who wants to kill him. How can this be? What happened? Hold on to that question. Right now we need to see what happens next. Does Esau do as he says? Does he kill Jacob? Does he make him a slave? Does he take his goods and property in vengeance? Let's find out, picking back up at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Hold up. What did we just read? Esau the hunter, the betrayed, the swindled, the man who swore he would kill his brother Jacob, now embraces him, kisses him, weeps with him? What is going on here? Clearly, Jacob's humility was met with an outcome, a change of heart, that can only be attributed to God's amazing work. Truly mind-blowing. But Jacob isn't out of the fire yet. Believe it or not, even after that, the pressure is still on. Picking up at verse 5 and going to 11. And when Esau lifted up his eyes, he saw the women and children. He said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Despite responding to Jacob's humility with joy and weeping, Esau still seems quite suspect. When the hugging and kissing stops, it seems an interrogation begins. Who are these with you? What do you mean by all this company I met? Here we read what I'm sure many of us have felt. 
the pressure of uncomfortable questions from powerful people. Maybe it's your boss asking again, why do you want Sunday off? Maybe it's your friends asking, what actually goes on during a worship service? Or maybe it's your classmates, knowing you're a Christian, asking what exactly you believe about gender and sexuality. Questions which can be genuine and honest, but depending on the circumstance, depending on the context, can be another source of tremendous pressure. But how do God's people respond to this pressure? We've already seen and noted humility, but in this section, Jacob shows us another path. Recognizing God's grace and mercy in his life, Jacob responded to Esau's pressure with generosity. Who are the people with him? Jacob answers, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. What do you mean by all this company I met? Jacob's answer, to find favor in the sight of my Lord, please accept my present from my hand. Jacob's response to pressure was to acknowledge the grace of God and be generous to Esau in response. Jacob, the, one, the guy who cheated his way to steal a birthright, a man who put off God's will for two decades to gain possessions, now freely offers a great present to his brother, a massive flock of camels, cows, and donkeys, which he sent in the last chapter. Again, amazing. But you might be thinking, yes, Jacob gave a great gift, but that's because he was and still is afraid of Esau, and he just wants to appease him. Yes, he was and probably still is afraid of Esau at this point. But look at the text again. In verse 9, Esau essentially tells Jacob, hey, don't worry about a gift. Take your stuff back. I have more than enough for myself. Esau gave Jacob an out. Jacob could have kept his flocks with no hard feelings. This was an out that a possession-oriented man like Jacob would have definitely taken. But look at verses 10 and 11 again. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Jacob acknowledging the grace of God, even comparing Esau's forgiving face to the face of God, a high point of this passage, insists that Esau accepts his generosity. Though Esau doesn't need Jacob's flocks, Jacob understands that generosity promotes peace, that he has been blessed by God so he might bless others, and zooming in on the language of blessing, which Jacob himself uses, he recognizes that this generosity is another way he can make things right with Esau. This is a profound change in Jacob's character, from stealing Esau's blessing to now going above and beyond to offer blessing. Jacob responded to the pressure of Esau's army with humility. He responds to the pressure of Esau's questions with generosity, but there's still one more pressure to come from Esau. Let's read the rest of the chapter picking up at verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, 
My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob, arrived, uh, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. In response to Jacob's generosity, Esau comes back with his own generous offer. Now seemingly reconciled, finally on good terms, Esau offers Jacob to journey with him to Seir, Esau's land. The implication is that they might dwell together in unity. Jacob would finally have everything he's wanted. The looming threat of Esau would become a loving, protective brother. He would have land, wealth, and peace, everything he schemed for and sought after with intense desperation throughout his story. Yes, Esau's offer was generous, but it was actually another powerful pressure. For this offer of unity and land stood in opposition to God's will for and instruction to Jacob. Esau offered unity and prosperity in Seir, but Jacob knew full well that's not what God intended. Jacob, while panicking about Esau in the last chapter, said it himself. Genesis 32, 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Jacob had a choice. Follow Esau to a place where prosperity seems certain or follow God who merely promised blessing. Jacob was under the pressure of a powerful person, not making threats, not asking tough questions, but rather making a generous offer that would distract him and take him away from God's will. That's a pressure I'm sure many of us can relate to. Coworkers, friends, family, making us offers that aren't intrinsically evil or obviously wicked, but would distract us from the way God wants us to walk. There would be nothing wrong with Jacob going to Seir in certain circumstances. He was pretty much a nomad, and it's not like the land itself was evil. But he knew in that situation, going to Seir would not honor God's call to return to his country. So what does Jacob do? In response to the pressure of a powerful person making a generous offer, Jacob chooses obedience to God. Jacob chooses God's promise of blessing opposed to the blessing of Esau right in front of him. He recognizes that God's purpose, God's promise, was greater than anything Esau offered, even their newly restored relationship. Therefore, responding with obedience, Jacob heads to Shechem alone, not to Seir, with Esau or his escort. 
The passage ends with one profound note, again demonstrating Jacob's amazing change. In Shechem, Jacob erects an altar, and it's called El Elohi Israel. God is the God of Israel. He constructs an altar, a place of praise, thanksgiving, and remembrance. He recognized that despite losing out on wealth and prosperity, things he would have lived for only a few chapters ago, God's way was better. God's promise of blessing was worth pursuing, even if it meant the loss of immediate gain. He understood that God shouldn't thank him for following his, his way. Rather, Jacob should thank God for providing a way. The fact that God gives us instructions, gives us law, gives us a way to walk, that's something we must thank him for. And Jacob did just that by constructing an altar of praise, a shrine of remembrance. Jacob in this passage faced the numerous pressures that come when interacting with powerful people. His story shows that when faced with the pressure of powerful people, God's people ought to respond with humility, generosity, and obedience. But even after that, we're still left with a couple of questions. Firstly, how did Jacob go from swindler, deceiver, and schemer to an example of humility, generosity, and obedience to God? Well, the answer to that one comes from the end of Genesis 32. Jacob was transformed by an encounter with God. God not only blesses his people by arranging their circumstances or by softening the hearts of people around them, God blesses his people by dramatically and amazingly transforming them from the inside out. Jacob acted with humility because God had humbled him. He acted with generosity because God had been so generous with him, and he acted with obedience because God showed him his power and mercy. Jacob's sudden change is a shock, a shock so great that it can only be explained by looking at the context and seeing God's profound work in his life. Jacob, as he referenced himself right smack dab in the middle of our passage, had seen the face of God and lived. An encounter with God leaves us transformed. But that itself leaves us with a second question. So, God transformed Jacob by his grace. That led Jacob to respond to various pressures of Esau with humility, generosity, and obedience. But what do we do with that? Well, I could stop right here and conclude with this. When faced with the pressure of powerful people, be like Jacob. Act humbly, generously, and obediently. That's a good message. That's certainly a big part of the takeaway today. But there's something more going on. Something more than just following Jacob's example. Think about our story. Despite his transformation, despite God's grace in his life, Jacob wasn't quite perfect. At the very beginning of our passage, we see that he still arranged his family in the order of importance. Imagine being one of the kids at the front of the line. Not good. Not only that, near the end of the passage, Jacob tells Esau that he'll meet him in Seir. But it's clear from our text and from the context that Jacob had no intention of doing that. Despite God's amazing transformation of him, he still struggles with scheming and deceit. If you're thinking Jacob is the man and all you have to do is be like him, you're going to run into problems. Just living like this reformed Jacob, 
Trusting and following his new and improved example might get you far, but definitely not far enough. That's an important realization. And that's a lesson that Jacob's descendants, the nation of Israel, had to learn. Hundreds of years after the death of Jacob, Moses told this story to the Israelites to help them in their context. Like their ancestor Jacob, they too, as God's people, would be facing pressure from powerful people. For Israel, however, it wouldn't be an individual. Rather, it would be the nations that surrounded them. The nations who threatened with them with invasions, who challenged their belief in God, and who would constantly tempt them with power and riches. The people of Israel were meant to learn a lot from Jacob's story when it came to dealing with these pressures. And we see that many of them did. There was a recognition that Israel was indeed at its best when their nation, when their leaders and kings acted with humility, generosity, and obedience. But they were meant to see in Jacob what they experienced themselves. Just like their father Jacob, and despite constant reminders and assurances from God, they constantly fell short. Jacob's story, while it taught Israel a lot, it also pointed to their need of something greater. Just as Jacob failed, so often they failed as well. Can you relate to that? Do you share that experience? The Bible tells us that Christians, God's people today, will still face numerous pressures. And while a pretty good example of how to respond certainly helps, we need something greater. So what's the solution? Well, First things first, like Jacob, we need to encounter God and embrace his transformation. We all face pressures. We all face powerful people. And as Jacob's life shows, we need to be transformed to respond to them properly. But how do we become transformed? We don't hear stories today of God coming down and physically wrestling with people. Thankfully, we have something better. Starting with scripture, we can encounter God through the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God who humbled himself. Jesus took on human flesh so that he might walk among and serve humanity. He's God incarnate who poured out generosity. Jesus came to give life, life abundantly. He's the Messiah who obeyed God's will perfectly. Jesus did not break a single law yet he willingly went to the cross to die for the sins of an undeserving people. First things first, we all face life's powerful pressures and we need a savior who can transform us. If you haven't yet, you need to encounter God through Jesus Christ. And if you already had that first encounter, you still need that message. You still face the pressure of powerful people. You still need to respond to these situations every day. So you too need to keep seeking God's transformation in your life. You must continue to grow in your knowledge of Jesus. You must seek God's face every day. Your transformation may have started, but as Jacob shows, it must continue. So that's the first thing. Encounter God through Christ and embrace his transformation of your life. The second thing is to follow after him, to walk as he walked. God transforms people with a purpose. Jacob gave us a great example, a life we can and should learn from, but his example points to our need for Jesus as an example. Like Jacob, like Israel, and like us today, 
Jesus faced tremendous pressure from powerful people. He faced the scribes and the Pharisees, the Roman Empire, and even Satan himself. Yet Jesus, unlike Jacob, unlike Israel, and unlike us, he responded with perfect humility, unparalleled generosity, and absolute obedience. Jesus not only saves sinners, he provides the perfect example for them to follow. We're transformed in order to follow that example. You will face the pressure of powerful people, and Jacob's story is so helpful. It does for us what it did for the nation of Israel. Jacob's right actions do indeed give us a good example, but his failings remind us of our need to ultimately and continually be transformed by God so that we might follow Christ's perfect example. It's after that message that that takeaway, I must end with one final disclaimer. For Jacob, humility, generosity, and obedience in the face of pressure led to temporal blessings, flock, flocks, family, and land. But this isn't the case for all of God's people in every situation. John Bunyan faced the pressure of powerful people, and he did so with humility, generosity, and obedience. But his confrontation, unlike Jacob's, ended with a 12-year prison sentence. Bunyan just did what I said we should all do, but that still ended with him in prison. What do we do with that? Was it worth it? Was humility, generosity, and obedience worth it for Bunyan? Is it worth it for you? There's no guarantee that our confrontations with the powerful will end with temporal blessing. Is it worth it? Without a doubt, Bunyan would say yes. Why? How could I say that? Because Bunyan made it clear through his writings that he understood that honoring God with our humility, blessing others as we have been blessed, and obeying God with thankfulness is far greater and way more satisfying than anything this world can offer. As Bunyan himself acknowledged while writing in a 17th century prison, the spiritual blessings of God's approval, a clear conscience when reflecting on our actions, and eternal life with Jesus Christ our Savior made it all more than worth it. So whether you end up like Jacob with a nation or like Bunyan in prison, know that God's people will be truly, spiritually, and eternally blessed when they seek God's transformation, follow Jesus' example, and respond to the pressure of powerful people with humility, generosity, and obedience. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this passage. We're grateful for being able to learn from Jacob's life. We ask that you would help us make use of this passage, that we can read it and see your wisdom, that we can understand that Jacob's change only came through an encounter with you that we can follow Jacob's example, follow Christ's perfect example, and respond to the pressure of powerful people with humility, generosity, and obedience. But we know that we need your help. We need your spirit. We need your grace. So please have mercy on us, encourage us, bless us, and transform us so that we might walk as you call us to walk. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today and sticking around to the end. I pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. If it already has been, I ask, please share this sermon with others so that they might too learn from Jacob's story. And for as always, for more messages of hope, 
visit us at www.gracebc.ca. Thanks.